One of my favorite metaphors to think about language learning is a shifting pile of sand, right? So if you turn a dial of sand over and you let the pile form, it starts building up and building up and building up, but every once in a while you see like a huge shift in the way the base of the sand is formed. And so rather than thinking that like any single grain of sand or any single lesson is going to have an impact, it's better to think of it as in terms of the broad array of things that you're contributing. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Daniel Walter joins us to explore psycholinguistics and their place in the language classroom. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we are speaking with Daniel Walter, assistant professor of German and linguistics at Emory University. Dr. Walter recently published a book titled Psycholinguistic Approaches to Instructed Second Language Acquisition, Linking Theory, Findings, and Practice. We will dive into his work today on our podcast. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Dan. Hi, thank you for having me. So Dan, to start us off, would you please briefly introduce yourself for our listeners and share a little bit about your background and your own path with languages? Um, sure. Um, like was said, I'm an assistant professor of German and linguistics at Emory University, and I actually teach at the Oxford College, which is about 30 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I teach mostly first and second year students. Um, I got into language in a kind of, especially linguistics, in a pretty roundabout way. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew from high school that I wanted to, to work uh, or do something with German. I had such amazing high school teachers um, who, you know, conducted study abroad and, you know, taught AP and you nice. really went out of their way to to make German something that was not just something in the classroom, but something that we could experience outside the classroom yeah. as well. And so I, I picked my college uh, that I went to, Dickinson College, based on their study abroad program. And I studied abroad there in, in Bremen, at the University of Bremen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, towards the end of my BA, I still wasn't, you know, 100% sure what I was going to do with German after graduating. You know, I loved the yeah. literature, loved the language. Um, well, my mom convinced me that I should at least get my teacher certification. So, um Interestingly, um, I had my first course in second language acquisition as part of that that teacher training, um, mm-hmm. and that really got me interested. So I hadn't yet had a course in German linguistics or anything um, at, in college, and like the whole kind of linguistic aspect and, and language and cognitive science behind how people learn languages really just kind of, um, you know, got me excited about another way to look at German. Sure. Um, and I also got, we, we got taken to Neckful um, that, that semester too. And I, I kind of got huh. to see like the conference and research scene for the first time. Yeah. Um, after college, I, I taught English in Hamburg, Germany through Fulbright. Um, and then um, I picked Michigan State um, to do my master's at because. Go green. Had, exactly. Where I met Angelica. <laughs> um, and uh, I picked it because they, they were going to let me take linguistics and, and SLA courses along with the German courses. Yeah. Um, and then um, that led me to um, Carnegie Mellon, which is actually in my hometown of Pittsburgh, where I did my PhD in second language acquisition um, under Brian McWinney um, and also had um, doctors Adam Van Kampernal and Ver Kempa on my dissertation. So 
that's how I got here. Nice. Very cool. Also, my brother went to Dickinson. I love Carlisle. Oh, Dickinson. really? And, yeah. That's yeah, actually yeah. one. My second kid's name is Carlisle. Oh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a cool spot. Let's talk about your your book, your new book, Psycholinguistic Approaches to Instructed Second Language Acquisition, seeks to bridge the gap between second language acquisition research and language teaching practices. So to begin broadly, tell us about this gap and what inspired you to do this research and writing. I was in a program at Carnegie Mellon where um, it's a modern languages program. So there's people from all different languages. And within the SLA program, there's people doing all different types of research. And so I was really exposed to a lot of different theories, a lot of different approaches. And even on my dissertation committee, you know, Brian McWinney is like very heavy in child language acquisition, psycholinguistics. Yeah. And um, Adam Van Convernal comes more from a socio, um, sociocultural approach. You know, and I'm trying to, you know, negotiate these different ways of looking at language learning and seeing how, you know, how do these processes all fit together, right? It's not like one of these is absolutely correct, right? So how do these kind of like integrate with each other and how can we see, you know, how can psycholinguistics, you know, um, affect what the types of teaching that we do in the classroom rather than just describing it? And then on the other side, you know, things that are more instructionally focused like, um concept-based instruction that I work with, you know, what are the cognitive mechanisms behind that? And so trying to make those connections clearer, um, which I had to do for, for my dissertation <laughs> so sure. that people would yeah. agree on it, um, but also that um, people who, you know, maybe fall on one side or the other more see a clearer connection between, you know, theory and, and practice, so teaching and, and researching second language learners. Nice. You view conscious and unconscious learning processes as more of a continuum than a binary. Of course, we like the sound of that here on Speaking of Language. What can you tell us about how you view the spectrum of learning in your students or in students in general? So I think what's important um, for me to kind of differentiate here is that that I'm not saying that there aren't conscious and unconscious things, but that... Um, some a lot of the things that operate unconsciously, you know, you can pull into your conscience. So I, I wanted to take as an example, you walk into a second language classroom for the first time, pick a language you don't know. And you sit down and the person, um, the teacher or the instructor, whoever is start starts to speak in that language. I mean, I do that in my one on one class, sure. <laughs> you know, um, and I so to think to yourself, what are you consciously paying attention to? Like, what are you paying attention to? There's no way you can pay attention to, to symbolic meaning, right? You, you so. don't know what any of the words mean. Um, mm. So there's all these other things that you're, that you're attuning to, not just the speaker details. So like what are, what are the you know, physical aspects of the room and what are the things that the instructor's doing? But also if you, you're looking at the language, you're paying attention to the sounds of the language, right? You're, you're looking purely at the sounds. Like what sounds do you hear? What patterns can you pick up from those sounds? Um, and how can you repeat those? Um, if you look at advanced language learners, go back to that same classroom four or five years later, those would be subconscious processes, right? Mm. You, hopefully the, the learner is no longer listening for, for recognizing phonological patterns, but they're, right. they're automatically recognizing words. So what's important here is to understand that the same mechanisms involved in raising awareness of consciousness and paying attention in that first class are the same mechanisms involved later and that they can be turned to look at different things. So mm -hmm. um, they might say that there's certain 
entrenchment or stabilization of certain phonological patterns that the person's producing, right? But an advanced student can just as well turn their attention for meaning to the way that they're producing certain sounds, right? And so what I'm trying to show in this book is that um, these conscious processes and what we do subconsciously versus consciously fluctuate throughout the the course of someone's individual development Mm -hmm. and should also fluctuate throughout the curriculum. But there's no reason that things that have been proceduralized or or, um, automatized, they can still be put back under the microscope of consciousness and worked on by students to reflect on. So I think um, what's really important for me and I hope people get out of the book is that, you know, there's this divide in SLA between explicit tasks or explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge, right? Yeah. But I think that leads some people to think that like things that are learned implicitly then cannot be brought under mm. the scope of consciousness. Interesting. Like that's, yeah. Which I which I would say is absolutely not true, right? Yeah. Um, you can you can take things that you do automatically and take a closer look at them every day. So sure. Um, I think that talking about language learning on a continuum of conscious to unconscious makes more sense than just assuming that certain processes are conscious processes and certain ones are unconscious processes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Tell us more about how psycholinguistics comes into play. What are you hoping an instructor can find in your book that would help revamp their classroom instruction? One of the things that I hope instructors can find out of this book, and, and I wrote it in a way that I hope is approachable to to most people. There, there's a, it's a little theory heavy in the middle, I would say. But if if you didn't know any psycholinguistic theory, I would hope you could pick up this book and read chapters one, five, and six, right, and and get a ton out of it. And so, what I hope that you get out of it is understanding for as an instructor, what are the psychological processes going on inside of um, every single learner in your class, and how can you use that understanding to structure your curriculum, your lessons, the way that you teach in a way that's going to make the most use of those um, psychological processes and also diversify the types of processes that you are involving. I think one of my favorite parts of the book that I get to talk about is, you know, there's no right method, Mm. right? There's no singular method. And in fact, using only a single method, I find detrimental because you're only building certain ways of understanding language. Um, And so, for me, seeing that there's an art in the teaching of the science of psycholinguistics, in that the teacher or the instructor or, or whoever's, you know, tutor, it's their job to knit together these effective um, tools and understand what types of processes their students are going through. Um, and hopefully they can take a long-term approach. Like one of the things I hope they get out of it is that they they see that, you know, Grammar isn't learned overnight. Um, If you look at recent studies in in cognitive linguistics, you know, there's a lot of evidence that shows um, there's gradual development of of grammatical features, right? So understanding that and the process that it takes to acquire and use new forms would lead someone to, rather than think that I teach X form in German 2, would lead them to believe, you know, how do I revisit this term in more complex ways from German 1 all the way through mm-hmm. AP, right? The idea being that um, there's always room for a deeper understanding of these these grammatical features um, and that, uh, and not just grammatical features, I talk about other things that are really important, I think, in the book about 
motivation and, and other things that affect um, the way that, that learners approach language learning. But, you know, understanding that, you know, covering a certain topic at a particular time is not going to be sufficient for learning. And understanding that we should be structuring learning through multiple contexts over time and utilizing that, what I come back to then is utilizing that that conscious awareness that you have freed up in a later state. So like if you are more advanced, you don't have to use as much cognitive resources, as many cognitive resources sure. to to do the task, you can then apply those to thinking about, well, why am I doing the task this way? Why would I pick this term versus that term? Why would an author I'm reading decide to use this term versus that term? Um, and I think those are questions that, you know, bring grammar back into play, not just at the high school level, but also I think important at the college level, right? So how do you keep integrating um, the understanding or the, you know, the use of language throughout the curriculum, even in courses that, you know, maybe have a literary focus? Yeah. You also discuss in your book the unique perspective that multilingual cultures have to offer on second language acquisition. Can you unpack that for us a little bit more? Um, sure. Um, I would say that, you know, before I started this book, I was, you know, very naive or unaware of like non-Western teaching practices. And, and yeah. I admit that even in this book, right? This is not a book about those teaching practices, but I thought it was important to emphasize that, you know, the focus of this book is on a type of language teaching that has been popularized in Western traditions and spread throughout the world through, you know, um, colonization, other means of disseminating yeah. um, educational traditions. But doing this work, um, I came across a lot of um, interesting things that were related to especially the first chapter in terms of how why why do we learn foreign languages what is the motivation what is the what builds motivation in individuals and looking at things like um, the need for religion uh, the need for language for religious purposes or um, the right. the need for language to continue heritage languages mm -hmm. um, I came across a lot of very you know interesting perspectives and I wanted to just make sure that um, I emphasize that our, our, from my understanding of our field, it's fairly heavily focused on like what we've done in the classroom in Western traditions. And I think there has been a lot of exportation of that, but we haven't done a great job of importing other ideas from, from maybe non-traditional, or I don't, I don't know if it's right to say non-traditional, non-Western sources. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, just for example, like talking about language learning in the classroom um, if you were to talk to someone who lives in a more, much more multilingual space than the United States, not that the United States isn't multilingual, but uh, um, there are definitely well, spaces ed, where maybe isn't. Yeah, there are beliefs <laughs> that it is. There are beliefs that it is, and there are procedures in which it seems de facto. Yeah. Um, but some people are learning languages their whole lives. One of the um, really interesting studies I found was um, on um, two tribes of of. African, um, two African tribes. One was used to learning languages throughout their life, and they had built, like, through their culture, like, a lot of different ways that they teach themselves a new language, you know, hmm. and whereas the other tribe that wasn't as accustomed to, to trading with so many different tribes, like, didn't have one as part of their culture, right? And, and so, like, it was much more difficult for the one tribe to to learn a new language than it was for the other tribe that had these kind of like culturally inherited ways of going about learning foreign languages. Yeah. 
And another thing that I, uh, I've recently um, read a book um, on um, forced migration in second language learning, um, um, of refugees from the Congo, from Africa that are in um, Sweden. Um, and uh, what is so interesting that like their perception of what goes on in a language classroom, which is seems for the Swedish people totally normal, um, is so foreign to them because they they learn foreign languages. One of the quotes is like they learn it from the streets, right? They learn it by sure. interacting with people traveling down the road, and they feel very isolated just learning language within like a classroom, you know. So I think there's there's just a ton I think that our field has yet to do in terms of mm-hmm. you know not just exporting our ideas but also trying being more open, letting the door open the other way, and yeah. being more at least open to t- trying to understand what what are some of the ways that foreign languages are learned and, you know, how could, what can that tell us about what we can do to improve our students? Well, and it's great that you raise awareness about that, right, that we still can develop as a field and have a ways to go. <laughs> Hopefully. So what advice would you give a language teacher who is interested in your research? What's one thing they could do today to connect to their students more effectively? Um, so one uh, I mentioned before about thinking about learning not as something that happens in a particular lesson. Yes, um, we can look at like um, microgenetic processes where, you know, there's a shift from one second to another. But one of my favorite metaphors to think about language learning is like a, a shifting pile of sand, right? So if you turn like a sun, like a, a dial of sand over and you let the pile form, it starts building up and building up and building up. But every once in a while you see like a huge shift in the way that the sand is, the base of the sand is formed. And I like to think of language learning that way, right? So you keep getting input, you keep getting input, and then after a while, like some of these more fundamental changes to your to, to your understanding of the language happen. And so rather than thinking that like any single grain of sand or any single lesson is going to have an impact, it's better to think of it as in terms of the array, the broad array of things that you're contributing that will have right. you know, an impact in the change in the system overall. Which I think fits nicely with dynamic systems theory and other things that I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and um, one thing I think that you know is is less. I don't consider it less psycholinguistic because I think motivation is absolutely part of the psycho psychological mm-hmm. processes. Um, just depends on how you define psycholinguistics, but you know, um, something that I think I would start from the beginning is you're trying to develop goals for students. You know, like. I have a lot of students in 101 who enter the class and I ask them, you know, what, why are you taking German? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of just like, I need to fill a language requirement. It's the only space I had open. And something I try to work on really hard by the end of the semester is like, hopefully that's not your answer at the end of the year, Mm -hmm. right? And then once you get them to do that, then, you know, you can have them start thinking about, well, maybe, maybe you would want to study abroad, right? Maybe you would want to experience the culture, the yeah. language within a, another cultural context. And then, like, like I said, this is, a, this is not done in a day, but throughout a curriculum in which by the end they see that, like, not only do they see that there's utility in the language that they learned and that they can, uh, they can leverage that skill to get, get, get a good job or, or do something that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do, um, but I also hope that it just um, changes their perspective um, on the importance of, of language learning, the importance of, of cultural understanding, and that, that all the stuff that they gain throughout the curriculum 
you know, helps them build toward being lifelong yeah. learners and, and, you know, um, culturally understanding individuals. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, Dan, what other projects are you working on these days, and where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Uh, my PhD advisor, Brian, always said I had to have like three or four projects going on at a time. So <laughs> I've been trying to maintain that while also teaching, you know, three classes a semester. Yeah, that's so. silly. You got to stop know. that. But um, I, I have uh, a project that's been, I've been trying to get underway since 2019. Obviously, pandemic, mm. you know, laid laid that to the wayside a little bit, but um, something I've been interested in is, um, you know, language learning um, and forced migration. I mentioned that that mm. book previously, but um, I've been working on building a network in order to do um, interviews with, like I said, 2019, I was interested in Syrian refugees in Hamburg. Mm. Um, and then since 2022, um, also the Ukrainian refugees that are in Hamburg and looking at what are the what are the factors that are leading to or contributing to language learning among these different populations? And I, I think contrasting the Syrian population and the Ukrainian population gives will give an interesting insight into mm-hmm. the individual factors as well as group factors that are relevant. Um, yeah. I mean, kind of contrasting, like, what are the actual experiences of these learners with what government officials want, what testing um, expectations there are, what how they're being taught. So that's a really big project. So yeah, that's not going to be done anytime soon, but uh, hopefully get get a little bit more um, work on that. I was actually able to take some students last summer uh, to Hamburg to do just some, nice. some scouting. So um, other things, um, I'm also, you know, I did my dissertation on case and gender learning. Um, so it's always something that fascinates me. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking currently at, you know, whether repetitive cues lead to like help or hinder uptake of acquisition. So uh, happy to go into more detail if you invite me back, but I'll leave it there for now. And then um, I'm also, um, I've, I've been interested and had a chance to work with a non-binary student um, looking at um, how non-binary pronouns um, are used in German and as well as how can we use them in the second language classroom. And um, I'm working with a couple people right now to put together a, a proposal for um, Unterricht's uh, praxis on uh, non-binary identity in the second language classroom, because um, I think, you know, um, there's so much work that we can do to help some of these individuals. Like, I, I feel like not too long ago, like the reason so many people took German, and this is maybe just my opinion, but was like, you know, you have family heritage or something like that. Um, but we need to, you know, do the work as German teachers and professors to, you know, make German. Uh, any language, but for me, German, um, an inviting classroom, a place where they can see themselves in. And, you know, it takes us doing some of this work on on not putting the impetus on our students to to find all this stuff out for their own, right. but, you know, do the research about how can we make LGBTQ plus issues part of the curriculum and yeah. how can we how can we deal with racial issues in the classroom? So um, those are all really important to me and things I've, I've come to learn since, you know, becoming a professor that... I didn't have to face as much as a graduate student. Sure. Awesome. Well, this has been great to chat about all of this and we so appreciate it. Uh, But before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn that doesn't exist in English, but you wish it did. What is that word for you? 
So I have to go with my favorite German word, which is Fanweh, um, which literally means fan is afar or distant, and weh is pain. Um, and it's the opposite of Heimweh, which is homesickness. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. afar sickness. Um, and the reason I love that word is just like I grew up thinking like, oh, you can be homesick, but what if you want to go somewhere else, right? You could just be at home feeling the need that you need to get away and that you need to be mm. somewhere else. So thanks. Nice. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Thank you very much, Angelica and Sam. Tune in next week to hear about two other fantastic podcasts here at Cornell. The Next Monsoon, produced by the South Asia Program, and Getty Lecture Rewind, produced by the Southeast Asia Program. Until then, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.